We have a very special guest today, you guys. We're really excited about this. Uh, this is an interview that we've been hoping to do for quite a bit of time with this gentleman. So this is going to be a really exciting show. Obviously, this is outside of our typical schedule. You're getting a bonus episode this week on the podcast, which is, you know, always really good. But if you just sit tight, relax, enjoy the show. Welcome to this very special bonus, Pretty Happy Podcast episode. My name is Sam. Unfortunately, Sarah, my wife, is not able to join us today, but we are the parents of Zoe, a child with Rett syndrome. And like I mentioned at the top of the show, we are excited for this very special interview that we have with Dr. Alan Percy. And Alan Percy has been a leading uh, researcher in Rett syndrome in helping us figure out what Rett syndrome is, how we can help individuals who are dealing with it, and even beyond Rett syndrome, he has done a lot of work in helping with Rett-related uh, syndromes as well and helping individuals manage that. So Dr. Percy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Well, wonderful. No, <laughs> you're just fine. That, um, we, uh, like I said, thank you so much. This is uh, such a pleasure to be able to chat with somebody who has been doing research on this. We, uh, for, for many, many years, uh, I was, as I was preparing for this interview, I was able to see that one of the first papers that you're cited on regarding Rett syndrome goes back to uh, the early 80s, if I remember correctly. And it was really interesting to read the abstract on it where the conclusion was, uh, it, was it was a study where you had 18 participants, uh, 15 were typical, uh, you had thir uh, three who were non-typical uh, when it came to Rett syndrome, and to me, it just put me in a, in a really good headspace to be grateful for where we are at right now when it comes to Rett syndrome and what we understand about it. Because the conclusion was you couldn't really determine whether or not the individuals had Rett syndrome with 100% certainty in that moment. So the science has absolutely come along a, a, quite a bit since you first began your research in the early 80s. And so I'd, I'd love to just kind of begin there with talking with you about what that was like. What got you interested in doing research on Rett syndrome to begin with? Well, I'm a child neurologist. I have been for since uh, 1970 or so. And uh, it's uh, my uh, interest in child neurology really goes back to the time I was in medical school when uh, I had an advisor and I worked in his lab and his, he was a child neurologist. And I had laboratory experience, uh, which went on for another 40 or 50 years. So I was busy in the laboratory uh, at the time. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, I had met Bank Togberg I'll come back to him later, but I had met him in the uh, late, uh, in the early 60s, um, when he was in uh, Uppsala, Sweden. But um, in uh, 1983, I was uh, asked by, because I was a consultant to a child development clinic, I was asked to uh, give some uh, guidance on a, a little girl who's uh, diagnosis actually had been made by her pediatrician 
turns out the pediatrician had subscribed to um, an abstracting service and had an abstract on the first article uh, published worldwide by Hogberg in 1983. And so uh, through a series of events, I arranged to make a home visit to this uh, family and saw this little girl. And she clearly met all of the features that uh, Hogberg describes in the article. Uh, so if we go back in time, it turned out that the bank, whom I uh, came to know very well, uh, I spent a year in sabbatical in the late 80s in Sweden and I uh, saw him at least every other week at a conference. But in the late 50s, uh, he and Andy Rett, Andreas Rett, were both seeing girls who turned out to have Rett syndrome. Um, they had different behaviors. Um, Andy Rett captured uh, about 25 girls uh, and young women, and he wrote them up in the, the Vienna Weekly Newsletter in German. So you can see, first of all, it's a weekly newsletter. It's in Vienna. It's not widely circulated, and it is in German, not read by many people. Uh, Hogberg, on the other hand, made notes, put things up on the shelf and said, I'll get back to it later. You fast forward to the late 60s, early 70s, uh, he, he uh, among other uh, child neurologists in Europe, organized a, a meeting of child neurologists from around Europe. And during one of those meetings, uh, the subject of Rett syndrome came up. And he said, well, I have all this information, but it didn't, uh, my patients didn't exactly match what uh, Rett had, was seeing because he, he was finding elevated uh, blood or serum ammonium levels, ammonia levels in these girls. And we never saw that. Well, it turned out over the course of time that the machine uh, that they were using in Vienna at the time either was not calibrated collect correctly or the blood samples weren't handled properly. So about a third of these girls had elevated ammonias. When Ockberg became aware of that, he said, we got the same issues. Uh, so he, uh, along with a, a child neurologist from Paris, who was uh, world famous, and two from Portugal, published this paper in 1983 in the Annals of Neurology, which is a highly regarded journal uh, and is read internationally. And at that point, uh, that syndrome became a worldwide uh, diagnosis. Now, the point you made earlier was that it wasn't easy to tell who had Rett syndrome because there was no uh, mutation associated with it at that time. Um, because Rett syndrome occurred essentially in girls, with rare exceptions, um, the, it, it must have been a gene genetic disorder. It could not be related to an infectious process. It, nothing like that would pick out only females. Uh, so uh, when I had this uh, girl in the, in the clinic, uh, I brought a number of 
uh, child neurologists uh, in and discussed this. And interestingly enough, about half of the child neurologists at Baylor, because I was at Baylor at the time, said, well, uh, I think this could be something. Uh, and the other half said, nah, this is just serendipity. It's, uh, it's a coincidence. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, Hockenberg to some extent, but Rhett in particular, it was told the same thing that he was nuts. That this this wasn't a real disorder. He was making it up. Uh, but <laughs> it certainly uh, was real to uh, the individuals afflicted with it and their families. That's correct. <laughs> so uh, that uh, we started a clinic then in 1983. It was actually the end of '83, so '84. And uh, there were two people involved, uh, particularly uh, Dan Glaze, who's uh, just retired, as, and uh, Huda Zogby, who was just finishing her training. And uh, I, I talked to Huda and urged her over subsequent years, even though she was doing a fellowship on another disorder in genetics, uh, I said, you need to conti continue to consider uh, genetic abnormalities in this disorder. So for the next 15 years, her lab did work on that to some extent. And in 1999, they uh, they proved that there were there was a genetic disorder associated with the gene, which is shorthand as MECP2. That I could tell you what that means, but it <laughs> it's not that important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we have, we have begun to. Uh, follow girls with Rett syndrome and, and recognize one that they were very small, uh, two that they had uh, an abnormal head circumference that decelerated after they were born. So head circumference increases in a in a known rate, but it doesn't. It, there is a decline in the rate of decrease normally. In Rett syndrome, it decreased faster than you would anticipate particularly in the first couple of years of life. Uh, we, uh, by the time uh, I left Baylor and came here to UAB, uh, University of Alabama at Birmingham, uh, we had about 150 girls or women that we were following. And one thing that we noticed was that, uh, and there's no credit on us, it's really credit on the families and medicine in general that uh, care associated with these girls had improved dramatically compared to what was provided at the time that Hogberg and Rapp were, were first seeing these girls. Uh, so uh, that was one of the first studies we did was to look at the survivor survival or longevity in Rett syndrome, where we showed that in, in a large number of girls, survival is uh, over age 50. Now that's not com normal compared to the quote, normal female population, mm -hmm. but it's much better than uh, was found out in Rett's initial population where out of these 25 or so girls and women, only one person was still alive at age 25. Wow. So that's a dramatic difference, but there was a, a difference in the approach, uh, difference in medical care, in approach to nutrition, uh, in approach to the scoliosis, 
uh, where now about 20% of the girls that we see have a surgery for curvature yeah. uh, when it's necessary. Yeah. Uh, 85 or 90% will have some degree of curvature. Yeah. Well, and so going back to what you were saying about just the general medicine, I'm assuming at the time that Andre Rett was, was making these discoveries and, and following these 25, 25 females, were they doing much in the way of placing G tubes for nutrition? Were they doing anything to assist with that? Uh, I, can't answer that specifically. Yeah, but I would I would doubt very much that that kind of uh, treatment was uh, used at that at that point in time. Mm -hmm. uh, we are aware uh, that even in that time, the the uh, stigma of having a child with any developmental disorder, but particularly with Rett syndrome, was so significant that the families just broke apart. And, uh, and in some cases, the, the girls were ignored or uh, mm. denied what you, you would uh, under, normally understand would to be appropriate general care. Yeah, most definitely. We had a, an interview with a, an occupational therapist that uh, episode that we released a, a few weeks back. And one of the things that we talked about there was the history of occupational therapy, which it really began to uh, take hold following World War One. And we didn't specifically relate it to World War One, but I began to associate it with that because there was a, quite a bit of discussion about shell shock, what we now know as PTSD. And there absolutely was a stigma at that time regarding anybody having any sort of mental difference uh, and mental capacity that was different from uh, somebody else, uh, physical uh, differences. And so I, I could absolutely see that as well. I've, I've heard horror stories of individuals who were non-typical being placed in, in horrible situations, whether it be homes or uh, hospital facilities or anything like that, where they are more or less deprived of the emotional care that they're required, the love uh, and the, the positive treatment that just human beings, regardless of your abilities, need. And so it sounds like what, what we're running into right now, or at least what we've run into with Rett syndrome over the past 30 years is a change in culture that has also benefited individuals with Rett syndrome to where they are able to live a full extended life. Like you said, not, not to the extent of a typical uh, individual, but to be able to live to 50 with all of the issues that they may run into is rather impressive. So in the last 20 or 25 years, uh, we've noticed a, a major difference in approaches and in the natural history study, which we had here in the U.S. from 2003, although we first began enrolling uh, individuals into that in 2006, uh, we've noticed that um, in this country, 97% or more of the girls with Rett syndrome were living at home in their biological home. Mm -hmm. um, it's not true all over. Mm -hmm. That is just not true. And certainly the care and guidance you get at home, particularly in the first 20 or 25 years of life, 
is crucial for the development of any individual. Uh, these girls and women have a definite emotional uh, construct. They uh, or they relate to their parents and to their siblings uh, in a very close way, not normally, mm -hmm. as they don't interact or don't communicate, but there is a, a social interaction. And we found that in many families, particularly when the brother or sister goes off to college or the brother and sister or sister gets married, the girls actually go into a depression mm -hmm. because part of their life has been extracted from them and they don't understand what exactly has happened. So we, we encourage girls uh, in school to be in resource classes, whatever they need, but also to be in a normal uh, classroom environment during things that are more social in nature, such as uh, uh, music or uh, reading a book uh, mm -hmm. or art, things of that nature. Uh, where they can uh, participate just as well as, as anyone. Uh, and we have many, many stories of girls who, when graduate from high school or finish high school, uh, continue to be close with their classmates in high school. So uh, correspondingly, we encourage families to progress their daughters through their grades not based on their age, mm -hmm. not based on their capacity to read or write or move around. Yeah. Because they, they can develop uh, meaningful and lifelong uh, experiences. Most certainly. Well, I, kind of going along with that, I, I have a further question. Being that your uh, area of expertise is neurology, what information is there right now or what do we know about any sort of correlation between Rett syndrome those afflicted with it and cognition is there a link to that at the moment or is it simply that we have not uh figured out the best way to be able to tap in to their brain and what they're feeling and what they want to express so that is a a key issue because these girls do not use their hands normally, and they do not uh, speak in a typical fashion. Uh, the standard uh, academic assessments or IQ assessments are not valid. So it's very difficult to assess cognition. Uh, if you go on what they do, mm -hmm. certain whatever uh, psychometric study you may, uh, test you may use, uh, they're very significantly impaired based on that information. But uh, we hear stories of uh, girls who have uh, iPads, uh, mm -hmm. work with iPads, uh, uh, for example, or the uh, video programs. Yeah. And some of them make uh, very meaningful um, interactions with it. And some are said to be able to read uh, and to compose thoughts uh, based on their ability to interact with this machine. 
Um, that is one area that simply has not been studied to the extent that it could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is well beyond my capacity, but it could be looked at. However, there's nobody funding that. Yeah, um, that's a that's a tragedy. Yeah, we we shared in a previous episode that I had done a deep dive into the research that was being done regarding communication technology, and it appears that there's quite a bit of work happening at several universities in Sweden at the moment, and it's very interesting. And and what I saw in the abstracts of those papers was very similar to some of the abstracts that I read to the papers uh, you participated in in the 80s, in that there the conclusions were we need to do more to understand it, whether that's implementing more trainings for the educators and the parents and those who are nearby and close to the individuals using these technologies, or we need to do further studies on how we can adapt the technology to the individuals, give them more flexibility. I certainly know that in our home situation, Zoe uses an eye gaze device and Sarah and I began uh, on a very simple path with it where we chose what words we wanted Zoe to be able to choose at the beginning. And we felt we weren't getting anywhere with it. And with some help within from individuals who have worked on this for an extended period of time, Zoe is now being able to express some thoughts and emotions. Uh, We still have to kind of interpret it the way that you would a child who is babbling uh, in their toddler years. But she did not receive her eye gaze until she was four years old. So she was past the point that our one-year-old was at when he began babbling. So I, I do agree with you that we have a ways to go to be able to figure out how we can best use that technology. You've mentioned, also a group, go ahead. A group the University of Minnesota who is looking at uh, this kind of technology. Um, but there, there are maybe many others around the country, around the world uh, that are looking at this. But again, the, the funding for that is just not at the level of, let's say, biologic research uh, yeah. through the NIH. Yeah, I'm assuming that's uh, has a lot to do with the fact that is is it because it's educational or is it because it's more seen as as psychological research? Do you, do you happen to have any guesses of why it's not receiving the funding that it deserves? Part of the issue is uh, Rett syndrome is one of the seven thousand rare diseases. Um, there isn't enough money in, at the NIH to study all 7,000 disorders, particularly when a huge chunk of money goes to look at, say, cancer or uh, issues in adult neurology or psychiatry, such as uh, dementia mm-hmm. or Alzheimer's disease or stroke. Um, so the rare diseases that have had to fight like hell to have access to the money. Unfortunately, uh, Congress recognized that in the uh, last century and uh, the Rare Disease Initiative was started and there's actually an institute now or a center at the uh, National Institutes of Health which looks at rare diseases, but still it's uh, only one of 7,000 disorders. And we had our, we had uh, 19 years or 18 years of study 
uh, funded by the NIH. And I guess you could say we had our turn at the wheel. Mm. And now that we, we have to go away and, and let other disorders um, have their turn at it. Um, what we learned through the natural history study was tremendous. So we, we published more than 50 uh, individual papers, some review articles, uh, and the progress from that has been uh, really quite remarkable. And in, in the end run, has, that there are a number of drug companies now that are quite interested in the data and analyzing the data and using this natural history study as a basis for whatever drug study they may develop. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you go back to the early 2000s, uh, one thing that uh, your wife sent me, uh, the discovery of Adrian Bird. Adrian Bird was working with this gene well before it was ever associated with Rett syndrome. Oh, okay. He's a, he's a tumor biologist, and uh, MECP2 is a methyl binding protein, the product. Um, and so he was looking at methylation as a, as a way of uh, affecting the genetic material to control uh, the development of uh, neoplasms. So he, he was very experienced with the biology uh, and the uh, genetics of MECP2. And so when the genes were identified, uh, he, in his lab, they created animal models. And in that animal model, they proved that if you inserted the gene, normal gene, uh, into animals who don't have any gene, under control of a, a regulator, and you give the regulator, which turned out to be a, a estrogen stimulator, tamoxifen, uh, and um, it's again back to his relation to oncology research. Uh, it, he showed that uh, turning the gene on could recreate pretty much a normal animal. Now, they weren't completely normal, but they were 80 or 90% normal. Uh, that's a mouse. A mouse is not a human. No. Not even no. close. No. Uh, but it still, it was groundbreaking. It showed that you could uh, intervene with, if you had a gene. Uh, and what, one other thing he showed was it didn't make any difference what age you treated the animal. Treated older mice, and they got better. Wow. So if you fast forward 10 or 15 years, uh, there are um, vectors which are can be used to insert the gene in, and the vector can be uh, in, instilled into the individual. Uh, right now it's a mouse, and I think they do have a, a non-human primate animal model as well. Uh, and again, there is remarkable improvement. Uh, that's where we're, we're, at a, we're at a sticking point right now uh, with approval of genetic studies like that. Because if you go back to the 90s, there were two genetic studies which didn't turn out well. Uh, one was uh, the gene worked. 
reverse the individual's immunologic problems. But the gene also that they created had other unintended consequences. So it produced uh, uh, malignancies. And then there was another study in, a, in which a boy died or a teenager or a young adult died as a early recipient of the gene. And um, that, that set back genetic research uh, quite a ways and the FDA and the FDA in particular is very reluctant until uh, all of the uh, bells and whistles that they have are answered before they will approve the study. Yeah. There are two companies now in this country that uh, are pushing uh, gene therapy, at least two. And uh, one is saying they're going to have a protocol ready for next year. Uh, oh, wow. I'll wait to see that uh, when it happens because we've heard that before. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's happened many times. And it's really unfortunate that uh, it, it was set back during that time. But it also makes sense to uh, – because when you're talking about gene therapy, I imagine that the repercussions um, – not repercussions, but the side effects would be much greater in an individual, say, than like uh, an aspirin you know, or a new, or a new drug that it's treating some sort of symptom that you're running into, because this is something that is going into your DNA. It goes into who you are as a person and that can cause greater problems. Am I, am I correct on assuming that? Yeah. And once you give that gene, it's no taking it out. Yes. It's in yes. Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't, yeah, you take a little bit too much of, of, you know, a, a painkiller and all right, it'll be out of your system in several hours to maybe a day. Whereas what we're talking about with gene therapy, this is a permanent change. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I certainly hope that we can figure out a way to do this and, and make it happen safely. And we can make these changes for individuals with Rett syndrome and even beyond that. So they can, um, lead a, a even more full life. The one more question that I, I had for you, Dr. Percy, you've mentioned several times regarding girls, obviously the, the beginning of Rett syndrome, it was understood that this was a disorder that affected females. That's, that's who Dr. Rett was working with the studies that were being put out throughout uh, the seventies and eighties. What I've seen is really focused on females. When was it that it became that the scientific community became aware that Rett syndrome was also afflicting males? So if you go back to the first clinical criteria, and they're very, very short, very specific. Um, the first criteria said female sex. <laughs> well, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. You will never have a male. So one of the senior uh, people in this country, Hugo Moser, who's now deceased, as well as Red and Hogger, um, we uh, put together a revision and we eliminated the sex requirement. So people began to look at, for, at boys. And what we saw was there were boys under two genetic scenarios uh, that had 
Rett syndrome, typical Rett syndrome. One was when they had another genetic disorder known as Kleinfelter syndrome. And that's uh, when you have 47, not 46 chromosomes. And it's different X, there are two X's instead of one X and a Y in a boy. So from a genetic point of view, these boys were like females. They had two X chromosomes. Some of their cells would have the mutation. Some would be normal in terms of MECP2. That was one group. And then there's a second group in which the boys uh, had a, a mutational event after the conception, but very early uh, in their life. And that's called somatic body cells. Uh, mosaicism. So they had two populations of X chromosomes. Again, one with a normal X, one with an X with an abnormal MECP2. You take those boys aside and there are probably uh, 10 or 20 that we know about and probably many more, but only 10 or 20 we know about. But uh, uh, three years ago, Jeff Newell and I and the group, we wrote a paper about uh, MECP2 mutations in boys. Uh, and we had 30 boys that we co uh, collected or enrolled in the natural history study. Um, <clears throat> one was a boy with somatic mosaicism. 17 or so of these boys had uh, mutations, which are also seen in girls with Rett syndrome, they didn't necessarily meet the criteria for Rett syndrome. Some of them were very seriously ill early on. They didn't breathe properly. And uh, in many cases, if they didn't have a ventilator, they would die. Um, then there were other boys who had mutations that do not occur in girls or do not cause a disorder in girls. And they had really mild developmental disabilities. So they were on the other end of the spectrum, mildly affected, but clearly not normal and had mutations in MECP2. And then we had boys who looked like, sort of like Rett syndrome, uh, but they were a little bit different. So we, we, Jeff, invented the term male uh, MECP2 encephalopathy. Um, and we know that we knew those 30 boys. Subsequent to that, we presented the data to the uh, group organized by the International Red Syndrome Foundation. And uh, there's a large uh, crowd on the, on the call. And it turned out we found another 60 or more boys with uh, uh, mutations in MECP2 and the same array of uh, disorders. And even more recently, in the last uh, couple of months, we've received an email from a parent, uh, and she has collected from around the world a fairly significant number of boys with mutations. So <clears throat> clearly it doesn't appear to be as common. Uh, and that's, and part of that reason is that 
the majority of cases, individuals with uh, Rett syndrome, females, the, the result or the cause of their uh, MECP mutation is a change in the DNA of the sperm, not something that the, the male father uh, carries, something that occurs in the sperm. Uh, well, that man can only give his X chromosome to a female. He has to give his Y to a male. So he's you're automatically you're limiting the number of individuals who would have a mutation. There are situations where a woman uh, would have a mutation in MECP2, but for a variety of uh, reasons um, would be essentially normal or completely normal. And, and, but she can then trans, because she carries the gene, she can transmit that gene to both boys and girls. Uh, and we've known that to happen. We've, we followed a family here from Michigan who that exact scenario occurred. So um, I think in the last uh, 30 years, the awareness of males has occurred, uh, has increased. Um, one of the issues is uh, if you look at a boy with a mutation, it doesn't necessarily meet the, the same features uh, that girls does, and therefore might not uh, come, to, you might not click to do a gene mutation, the MECP2. But more recently, I would say in the last 10 years, maybe even 15 years, uh, whole genome sequencing has become the way to go if you have a child who's not developing properly in one way or another. And if you do that sequencing, either off the whole genome or if it's in a screen, let's say uh, for seizure disorders or for muscle disorders, uh, and if the MECP2 is included in that and you do the screen, you're going to broaden your, your net or what you capture. Yeah. But uh, the question you raise is a very good point. We need, need not to uh, ignore boys who have mutations in MECP2. Yeah, most definitely. Well, and it, it kind of goes back to what we discussed earlier about we're in this great situation when it comes to technology and medicine where we are able to do more than what we were able to do even 15, 10 years ago. And, right. and uh, that, I think, is going to help us understand that the situation is, in fact, much more nuanced, and that is okay. And, in fact, we may gather more information by expanding our community and connecting with those who are having non-typical uh, mutations occur. We may be able to use that information to tap into, uh, whether it's uh, finding more uh, treatments that are out there or even possibly a cure in the future. So that's really exciting for me. And I'm grateful that we're in this situation right now. Our family is very young, Zoe being five years old. We are very new in this journey. And I'm very grateful, uh, not only to the families that have put in all the effort and work into making sure that Rett syndrome is front and center in uh, our, not just 
nationwide here in the United States, but worldwide, having conversations and making sure people are aware. But I want to say thank you directly to you, Dr. Percy, as well for your work in in the little bit I was able to read on the the, the papers that you have done. Uh, I am so uh, excited about where we are headed because I'm able to see how far we have come. It's uh, something that we, it's considering all the rare diseases, as you mentioned, that are out there, it it's fairly young in in um, in studies and whatnot. And so we have a ways to go to be able to understand more. And beyond that, we have a lot more to understand about the peripherals. Uh, we discussed the uh, emerging technology to allow individuals who are able to speak or communicate in typical ways. We have a ways to go to understand that too. So Dr. Percy, thank you so much for coming on the episode today. Uh, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your story. Uh, I know that we're going to be able to meet you uh, this coming Saturday at the Rocky Mountain Red Association Mardi Gras party. I'm really excited to meet you in person uh, and uh, I hope it's going to be a great time. Thank you. Absolutely. I want to say a big thank you once again to Dr. Percy for not only coming on the podcast, but for all of the work that he has done in researching Rett syndrome, encouraging others to research Rett syndrome, and being an advocate for making individuals, scientific community, whatever it may be, aware of the importance of, of helping those with Rett syndrome find support. Uh, he is an absolute wonderful research, uh, research, uh, wonderful researcher. Caught myself there. Uh, he's a wonderful researcher, but he's just a, a wonderful person, and he's been a great resource as well. The amount of time he has spent on this is just incredible, and so I am very excited to be able to hear him speak a bit more on this Saturday, March fifth at the Rocky Mountain Red Association Mardi Gras fundraiser. If you haven't already purchased tickets for it, what are you waiting for? Head over to their website, rmret.org. That's rmret.org. And you can buy a ticket to be able to attend. Now, those of you that are here in Colorado, in Utah, in Wyoming, in Nebraska, if you are nearby, we hope to see you there. Myself and Sarah, we are going to be there. We're excited for this great event. It's going to be a lot of fun that evening. But for anybody who's living a little bit further away, if you're not able to attend in person, guess what? There is a virtual portion. And yours truly is going to be hosting that wonderful event. So I'm really excited about that. Be sure to purchase your ticket. And the great thing about doing it virtually is you can purchase one ticket for the entire household. So if you've got a family of five that want to participate, you can have the whole family come together at one household and participate in this virtual event. It's all for a good cause. The Rocky Mountain Red Association is celebrating 10 years of the Rett Clinic at Children's Hospital here in Colorado. This is a phenomenal milestone. And through the hard work of the Rocky Mountain Red Association and its associates, and of course, Children's Hospital, they've been able to support hundreds of individuals with Rett syndrome, as well as their families. They've been able to provide answers, and they've been able to help families navigate what it really means to have Rett syndrome. I know that for Sarah and I, when we first received our diagnosis, we had a neurologist, wonderful, wonderful neurologist, who just didn't know what Rett syndrome was and how it affected Zoe. Uh, he was under the impression that Zoe was having seizures. We went to the rec clinic here in Colorado, and Dr. Banky was able to provide a little bit more clarity and said, I, he said, you know, he understood 
why this neurologist was saying that Zoe had those seizure-like symptoms. But he was able to help us wean Zoe off of that medication, and he's just monitoring her symptoms. He knows what to expect, and the other professionals there at the Rett Clinic here at Children's Hospital in Colorado, they know what to expect with individuals for Rett Syndrome. So once again, head over to rmret.org, purchase your tickets, share it with others. Let's get as many people out to support the event. There's going to be an online silent auction, and first time ever in the history of this event, we are going to have a live online auction as well. What that means if, is that if you are participating in the virtual space, you are going to be able to participate in the live auction as well using a cell phone, a tablet. You're going to be able to put your paddle up and say that you want to bid on an item. So that's going to be a very exciting opportunity. So head over rmret.org, get those tickets, and you'll be able to hear a little bit more from Dr. Percy and many others. Well, it is has been a wonderful bonus episode. And as we always do with every pretty, pretty happy podcast episode, oh my gosh, I am stumbling over my words today. With every pretty happy podcast episode, I'm just going to keep going from there. We are going to do a can't leave it. And I, my can't leave it today is in regards to a new television show that has just come out. Now, many years ago, I came across the History Channel show Vikings. Vikings is a great story drama not very historically accurate to be completely honest but they do a great job of telling this wonderful story of wonderful characters and it's just really exciting they ran that series for many many years and i believe it's been probably about two years since they wrapped up the series and i was i've been missing it i've been missing it well i hadn't heard that Netflix was working on a follow-up to the Viking series. This one is called Vikings Valhalla, and it takes place 100 years after the last episode of the original series. Now, I'm only two episodes into it, and I'll be honest, I read some of the reviews, and they weren't very hopeful. And I watched the first couple of episodes, and I'll be honest, I'm not very hopeful either. But here's the thing. I'm so nostalgic for how exciting the original series was. I have so much hope that they will be able to get it on a good track. Maybe this first series is just a trial run and people are trying to figure it out. I mean, let's be honest, sometimes Netflix is just throwing money at projects to get content onto their platform. And it doesn't always mean that it's quality content. <laughs> so uh, fingers crossed that uh, as I continue through the series, it'll get better. And uh, if it doesn't get better, I really hope that Netflix doesn't just cancel it and say, yeah, we're going to move on to other stuff because I really think there's some really great things that they can do. The original series of Vikings was focused on more of, I, I, I think it's mythical uh, because it's based off of a story of a man named Ragnar Lodbrok, which from what I understand, they're not 100% sure that he was even real. Uh, and, and so the new one is about Leif Erikson, who we do know to be real. And so that, I just think they could do some really cool stuff with uh, focusing on more historical figures, uh, real historical figures. I've always really enjoyed series like that that really focus on the historical aspect. I'll tell you what, The Crown on Netflix, that has been one that, oh, when I first found out about The Crown, geez, I, I binge-watched binge that first season, 
in a day and a half, two days. It was so good, and I've been a, a staunch follower ever since. So I think there's some hope for it. So if you were a fan of the original Vikings series, you should definitely go te- check out Vikings Valhalla on Netflix. I don't get any money for it by promoting it. I just think it's something fun. Maybe maybe we could get something out of it. Well, I don't do this for the money. Yeah, I most definitely don't do this for the money. We've spent more money on creating this podcast than we've ever made on this podcast. Anyways, regardless, thanks for listening, you guys. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we will talk to you on the next episode. And with that, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so that you're notified when we publish episodes, which is every other Monday morning. And please leave us a rating. Leave us a message or a question on the Anchor app and you can become part of the show. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Pretty Happy Pod, where we share episode clips, news and updates, and photos of our adorable daughter. If you would like to be interviewed on our show, reach out to us on any of our social media accounts, or you can send us an email at prettyhappypod at gmail.com. For more information about Rett Syndrome, visit rettsyndrome.org.